Comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 12 actually ends the first section of Isaiah. The next section, chapters 13 through 27, God is going to show his people his sovereignty over all of the nations of the world. If you're familiar with Isaiah, it doesn't begin on a very good note. Isaiah chapter 1 exposes the extreme evil and wickedness that existed among those who made claim to being the people of God. And Isaiah describes their evil as sickness of, of a putrid, ugly sore that is so desperately in need of healing. And toward the end of chapter 1, he says, he's, God says, come. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet. They shall be white as snow, though they're red like crimson, they'll be as wool. Isaiah will repeatedly expose the darkness and evil of the world that he's in, and even among those who may claim to being the people of God, but he will always come back to the God who saves sinners. That's actually the central theme of Isaiah, the God who saves sinners, the worst of sinners. He saves sinners. Before he talks about his sovereignty over the nations, he reminds us in Isaiah 11 and 12, of what this great salvation exists. I don't have time to uh, talk thoroughly about Isaiah 11, but Isaiah 11 is a chapter that talks about the messianic salvation that is coming. Isaiah writes in the 7th or the 8th century BC, somewhere around 700, 715 in that area, The people of God, Judah, are a diminished nation, not like under David and Solomon where they were, one of the most powerful nations of the world. They're now a diminished nation. Assyria is the world power. They are a cruel power. They're so powerful that Judah, this small southern kingdom, will see Assyria swoop down in 722 and 
destroy the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, deport most of the people throughout the Assyrian Empire. They were known for their cruelty, for how they uh, treated their captives. Judah is living in this world. This is the nation that God had promised would be a blessing to the earth. And now they're a diminished power. Not as bad as the northern kingdom, but still struggling with apostasy, struggling with being faithful. And Isaiah, as a prophet, is trying to call them back using the northern kingdom as an example. He's constantly trying to call them back. And one of the ways he does that is to talk about what will be the coming of the Messiah. He's the great evangelist of the Old Testament. And so Isaiah 11 talks about this one who will come and he describes him in this way. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Judah had never seen a king like this. They thought maybe they tasted it in David, but David failed them. They tasted it for a bit in Solomon, but Solomon failed them. Of all of the kings of Judah, there were eight that were partially good, four that were more good than the others, like Hezekiah, but all of them had their failures. But this one described in Isaiah 11, whose belt is righteousness and faithfulness, this one upon whom the Spirit of God dwells in such a perfect way, there's no one like him. And this is God's promise to Judah, you're diminished. But if you have faith, if you believe in this great salvation that God will bring about, this new world that ultimately will come, where this righteous king will live, will will, will reign. If you believe this, then this sustains you in this moment of trial. It doesn't change the moment of trial. Because ultimately Judah... 150 years later would apostatize and they would go into captivity for 70 years. Not all of Judah apostatized, but the righteous suffered along with the unrighteous. Even when the northern kingdom went was taken and dispersed throughout the world, not all of the northern kingdom was apostate. But the righteous suffered. Their homes were taken from them. They were deported to other nations of the world. And the only thing they had had to hold on to was faith in the promise of God. 
that God had promised a Redeemer who would not only redeem but would restore a perfect world someday. And this is what was meant to capture their hearts in the midst of their suffering. Well, we have the privilege of living in the what some call the already not yet fulfillment of that. That is, we have tasted the world that is to come. If you have been born again by the Spirit of God, you've repented of your sin, and God, the Holy Spirit, came to live in you, He brought to you the other world into your very being. He brought a taste of the future into your presence. And this great salvation, this great perfect salvation that will come, you are beginning to participate in today. It's not perfectly experienced, but it is real and it is certain it will not end. And so this calls for a response from us. And that's what Isaiah chapter 12 is. It's a response to Isaiah chapter 11. Do you believe the promise of God? Despite your circumstance, despite your suffering, your financial struggles, your marriage problems, you know, your, 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 your health struggles, despite the, 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 the world that we live in that seems in many ways to be falling apart day after day, do you believe the promise of God that in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that perfect world is yours? And you've begun to taste it today and you can hold on, but not just hold on. Isaiah tells us there are at least four responses to this grace this great salvation that God has given us. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. How do we respond to this great salvation? Do I believe that the Messiah has come and he is coming? I was sharing with uh, John and Andy, a friend of mine, and, and Brian before the service about one of our elders, Gary Travis, who some of you met He visited here with uh, Dawn and I, he came, he's white, has an Afro-American wife, but I have watched him over the past six years at Grace Church mature into such a godly man, and with a love for the, the Word of God, a love for the church, and you know, thought, he taught music all his life in public schools and never dreamed that he'd be preaching one day and teaching pastors in Cameroon. But God has just molded him in such a wonderful way. But over the last couple of months, we've watched God test his faith. Because it's easy to talk about the wonder and beauty of salvation when you know your paycheck is healthy your bank account is full you've got a home to go to your body is healthy and you know, Gary was telling us this morning as he preached that Friday afternoon he was singing to himself that song we just sang blessed be the name 
about how when the sun is shining down on you, and he's been fighting cancer, leukemia, and going through all kinds of treatments, waiting for that bone marrow transplant. And they, you know, he, he was telling us they've just about killed all the cancer in his body. You know, he's, he's cancer free so that he can get a bone marrow transplant that may give him a new opportunity to live without cancer. And he's thinking, the sun is shining down on me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And while he's walking along, taking a walk on a beautiful Friday afternoon as it was this past week, he gets a phone call from his nephew. His bone marrow donor was his 62-year-old sister. And he had just spent two days with her at the hospital, going through all the pre-testing and getting her familiarized with the setting so she could come back next Sunday and begin the bone marrow transplant. So he gets this phone call. The sun is shining down on him. And it's his nephew telling him that when his sister flew home Thursday and got up Friday to play tennis as she did three days a week, she had a massive heart attack on the tennis court. And Gary said, it went from the sun is shining down to, on me that I'm in the desert. I'm in the wilderness. I'm in suffering. But it doesn't change for him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he was scheduled to preach this morning. I knew it would be his last opportunity before he went in the hospital. And he always likes me to give him a text. So I gave him 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for verses 3 through 11. So he's been studying about the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies, who comforts us so that we can comfort others. The God who has the power to raise the dead. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, you, you want me to preach on Sunday? And he said, no, I'll, I'll do it. And he preached powerfully this morning. Now, can the gospel really be that wonderful? Can the promises of, of God be that certain, be that secure? That not only your sister has died healthy 62 year old he told me he was just admiring watching her at the hospital how trim she was and how healthy she looked but his bone marrow transplant the best shot for him and he is still praising the Lord and trusting the gospel Isaiah thinks the promise of God, this great salvation, is that wonderful? Because he says, you will say in that day, when you taste, when you experience, when you know, which we have if we've come to Christ, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to the Lord. Our response to grace is first of all and always Gratitude. I will give 
thanks to the Lord. And I've been, Gary's one of the best friends I have. He's not just a fellow elder and not just a brother, but a friend. I love him. We are so different. You know, I'm much more macho than he is. He is, you know, he's, he's nice. And, and uh, you know, he's from Pittsburgh. He likes the Steelers. I'm from Philly. I like the Eagles. Uh, he's a musician. You know, I'm married to one, but I, I'm, I'm not a... We are so different. You know, I could beat him in arm wrestling with my little finger, probably. And he jokes about that. But we become good friends in Jesus. And I've often, as I've watched him go through this, I've sat and I've cried. Because I love him so much. But I've been so encouraged that he grasps the gospel. He will give thanks. Now why? What is the basis of this unending thankfulness? Listen to our text. Isaiah says, you will give thanks. You will, you will give thanks because God, you were angry. You were angry at me, but your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Yeah, you were angry with me and rightfully so because I was a rebel, a sinner. I worshiped false gods. I attempted my own self-salvation. I was proud and ungrateful and I just didn't believe and you were angry. But he says your anger turned away and we know how and why that is true. That God's anger is Paul talks about it was propitiated it was removed that that judge who stood upon his wall that condemned us is now our father who is merciful to us because his own son shed his blood for our sin and bore his father's wrath so that his wrath could be taken away from us you were angry but your anger turned away that you might comfort us. As Gary talked about comfort this morning, how the Father comforts you, how you find comfort in Christ, how the Spirit of God comforts you. This is the same word that's used in that wonderful Psalm, Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. Both your discipline and your rescue of me, they, they comfort me. They encourage me. What is the basis of unending thankfulness? A reason to always be thankful. It's simply this. God's wrath has been turned away from me. And the only reason I'm not thankful all the time, and honestly, I'm not thankful all the time, because I have a bad memory. I have a short memory. And I'm easily distracted. Because as long as I'm mindful of God's grace to me in Jesus Christ, 
As long, as long as I'm mindful of how great of a sinner I was and how great of a God, of a Savior Jesus Christ is, then there's this thankfulness in my heart. There's this response that as, as D. James Kennedy said, once you get saved, the rest of your life should simply be P.S. Thank you, God. Thank you for saving me. The beginning of our thankfulness is when we grasp this salvation. You will say in that day, in that day when God's great salvation is known and experienced, this is when thankfulness begins. So how's your thankfulness tonight? Are you ungrateful? Is your thankfulness sporadic? Is it weak? Or is it growing? Because if we grasp, if we begin to grasp salvation, then we begin to understand that there's something in the person of Christ and the work of Christ that is so deep that you keep unpacking it and unpacking it through life. And the more you understand about who Christ is, the more you understand about how bad you really are and needed salvation, the wonder of salvation just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger so that our gratitude gets becomes deeper and stronger when we think about this great salvation. I love that old contemporary course give thanks with a grateful heart give thanks to the holy one give thanks because he's given jesus christ his son give thanks with a grateful heart give thanks to the holy one give thanks because he's given christ his son and now let the weak say i'm strong Because of what the Lord has done for us. Because of his saving grace, I will give thanks. But I won't only give thanks. I can be like Gary. I will trust him. Excuse me for a moment. I need my... As Gary preached this morning, I've heard him quote this so many times, but this is how he ended his message. This is his response to salvation. I trust him. It's the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. I encourage you to read that catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's the question of the catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me 
that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I've heard him quote that. That's sort of the motto of his life. What is my only comfort in life or death? Well, it's one thing to say that when you're a jogger and you're running and you're healthy every day. And another thing when you're under chemo and you're weak. And you can say with Paul, you know, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I want to stay here and serve Christ, but if God takes me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I, I believe this. This is real to me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. Drill that into your mind because God is my salvation. I will trust. And I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. You know, Gary is a musician, taught music in junior and senior high school for almost 40 years in Philadelphia Public Schools and he's a very good musician and knows all kinds. He knows more about music and different genres of music than any, anybody I know. But he tells me the only music he listens to today is classical music because it's beautiful and it helps him to reflect on God and the things of God that are beautiful. And gospel music. Music that turns his thought by its lyrics to Jesus Christ. Now I wonder if why we lose faith is that our, our songs are not what they ought to be. Because he says, the Lord God is not only my strength, he's my song. If there's something that's joyful and celebrative or even contemplative and meditative that, that comes to my mind that's musical, I'm going to let the Lord God be the center of it. Now, I love all kinds of music. And I do listen to other music. You know, I grew up on Credence and I like Credence. I like the style. But there's nothing in Credence that draws my heart to Jesus. In August, when I was preaching this uh, sermon to our church in Philly, I thought, I I'm going to check out the top 100 list and see what are people listening to. And so I found out that in that particular week, August uh, 14th, 2017, the top song was a song called Despacito by... Louis Fons, I don't even know who, who this is, but I found out it's, 
it's it's a Spanish song that is extremely popular, and I think Justin Bieber, you know, popularized it, putting it into English. Uh, but I I looked at the the lyrics, and uh, I, I find out it's a song about dance and romance. And then it becomes vulgar, but not just vulgar; it becomes perverse, and. Uh, the heart of the message is if you really want to be happy, you have to have illicit sex. So that was number one. Number two was Wild Thoughts by G DJ Khalid. Again, looked at the lyrics. It's vulgar, it's perverse, it's about drunkenness, it's about sex. The third song was uh, Unforgettable by French Montana. Again, the same description, vulgar, perverse, drunkenness, sex, drugs. What is your song? What is it that picks you up, that puts you in the mood, that relaxes you, that gives you a sense of joy, that sort of lifts you from uh, this world? Because that's what music does in many ways. What is your song? I will trust God because he is my strength and my song. And I can see why Gary, when he was taking his long walk on Friday, was singing Blessed Be the Name. It's such a wonderful song. Or one of his favorites is... Uh, 10,000 Reasons, which we sang this morning after his message. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Well, if that's what's filling your heart and your mind, and you get that phone call that changes your world completely, that is this world, but it really doesn't affect the world that's been brought to you by the Spirit of God. This great salvation that you are now a possessor of, waiting for that grand, that great inheritance. It doesn't affect that at all. And if this is what you're captured with, this is where your joy is. Because Gary's already decided if he needs to die, he'll die. He has nothing to lose. He's ready for that because he has this, this great salvation in Jesus Christ. What are your songs? I love contemporary Christian music, some of it. Some of it has good theology to it. Some of it is light and trite. And we were listening to something on the way up, you know, I'll fly away. And uh, didn't mention Jesus once. I mean, it could have been on any secular radio station. It was, you know, about having this freedom. And uh, now I like songs that point me to Christ and to His Word and to the gospel and to the assurance. And I like old hymns and gospel songs. You know, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. 
It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Thirdly, he says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I will rejoice. If only I had this discipline of mind and discipline of faith, which I I long for and I strive for. To not just say that I believed in Jesus, but I believe, I keep believing, I rest. If I could have, we all could have a disciplined faith that never takes its eyes off of the great salvation we have in Christ, then we would walk around full of joy all the time. But we don't. Because we have short memories, we're easily distracted. Because Isaiah says there's something about the well of salvation that brings you joy. Jesus said something similar. He said to the woman at the well, if you you drink water out of this well, you'll thirst again. But if you drink the water that I give you, then this water will be in you like fountains overflowing, just gushing out of you. You won't be able to contain what I give you. Jesus put it another way in John 6. He said, I'm the bread of life. He that comes to me, and the Greek is pretty firm there, literally. He who keeps coming to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. And again, he who keeps believing. Emphasizing that faith is not just something I did. I've received Jesus and now I'm saved. But faith is something I do. I keep looking to Jesus Christ as my all-sufficient Savior. I keep resting in Him. I keep looking to Him for joy. My life is in Him. And if I can have that discipline that keeps coming and that keeps believing, then Jesus said, you'll never thirst. But you and I know That we thirst. And it's not because that well of salvation has become rancid or sour or dry or it's been empty or access to it has been blocked. No, at some point we stop drinking, and Jesus says drinking is believing. At some point, we take our eyes off of Jesus. And when your eyes are off of Jesus long enough, your memory is short. And you begin to think that maybe there are other wells that can satisfy me. Certainly, Judah did that. Because later, the prophet Jeremiah would indict Judah. He actually cries out in these words. He says, be appalled, O heavens. At this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, 
broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's two evils. You stop drinking at the well of salvation. But then you went and you dug other wells and you filled them with stuff that you thought would satisfy that longing. But Jeremiah says, they're broken, they're cracked, they leak. They're not like this well of salvation that you can drink not only for a lifetime, but you will drink of it for all of the ages to come. Your life in the future will be a life that is satisfied in union with Jesus Christ, just as God intends your life in the present to be satisfied by union in Jesus Christ. God offers you nothing better now or tomorrow or in eternity than Jesus Christ. He is the best that you get. And the Bible tells us that if we believe and we come, that we don't hunger, we don't thirst. That this joy is, is real. And that is why the Bible ends with the invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let, him, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I love this metaphor of refreshing water cool water. I have a couple of friends in Africa. Both are, one is a businessman who has discipled probably more Christian leaders in Cameroon than, than anyone living. And the other is a pastor in the city of Douala. And both of them in their generosity, they dug wells outside their homes. And they invited their neighbors to come and drink clean, cool water. In a third world country, clean, cool water is something you only find if you buy it in a bottle. But here they have these deep wells with this seemingly endless supply of water. And the people from the neighborhood come and they fill their buckets, they drink. And of course, Claude and Isaac share the gospel. They present to them not only water, but living water. And I know that there's, you know, there's ministries like Samaritan's Purse that yeah, does a phenomenal job going to villages and you know, for $12,000 digging a well that provides water, but opens the door to talk about living water. Gospel for Asia does the same thing. I mean, this is the image of the Bible that you come to Jesus and you're thirsty, you're parched, and there's nothing that can satisfy that endless thirst you have, but you come to Jesus and you drink. And that smile comes on your face because it's good, it's fresh, it's cold. It's satisfying. And you drink with joy. I will rejoice. This is the consequence of coming to Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know there's lots of miserable Christians around. You may be one. You're unhappy about your life, and that shows in everything that you do. You're miserable. But Isaiah tells you why you're miserable. Jeremiah reminds Judah why they're miserable. You're not miserable because you are drinking by faith out of the well of God's great salvation. That's not why you're miserable, because that well is always satisfying. That well will never leave you thirsty. You're miserable because you've dug your own well. Or somebody else dug a well for you or told you about some place, some well, some thing, some event, some experience that you could have that would make your life what you're longing for. And you're miserable. And God's saying, come. There's no restrictions on this well. You don't need any money. Isaiah later will say, come without money. Buy, eat without money. Satisfy yourself because God, the Savior, He provides fully for all who come in faith. I will give thanks. I will trust. I will rejoice. And if you do those third, those three things, then in verse four, he says, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Now it's not Isaiah talking to people about their great salvation and their response to it. Now he's telling them, when you've experienced this, when you believe this, when your heart is full of gratitude, when your life is resting and trusting in Christ, when your life is overflowing with joy at God's great salvation, then you will say to others, give thanks. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds. Proclaim His name. Sing praises. He's done gloriously. Shout and sing for joy. It's what Gary preached about this morning, that comfort that God gives you with which you can comfort others. But so many of us are empty. We're not overflowing with gratitude to God for saving us. We're not trusting him for the tough times in our life. We're not drinking by faith the well of salvation and finding joy in that even in the midst of our pain. No, our lives are empty. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to say. Instead, when Christians gather with other suffering Christians, they simply commiserate. They share the misery, but they don't encourage and point to Jesus because they can't because they're not experiencing it. Isaiah's call is always a call 
to get a new vision of who God is. As he did, as we saw last time I was here in Isaiah 6, seeing God high and lifted up in all of his glory. Seeing in Isaiah 11 this great salvation that God has prepared for his people and believing it and letting it move you to the point where you can say, I will give thanks. Yeah, I hurt and I'm disappointed, but I'll give thanks. And I don't understand. You know, when Gary called me and told me what happened with his sister, I said, I have nothing to say except I serve a God whose ways are past finding out. I cannot explain it or understand it for a moment, but I trust him. I trust him. And that well of salvation, the world around me turns sour, but that well of salvation is always fresh and always a source of joy. I will give thanks. I will trust him. I will rejoice. And then hopefully, I will encourage others to do the same. Praise God. Let's pray together. We thank you for your mercy, the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort, who loves sinners and saves sinners and satisfies sinners. God, help us to learn and develop the discipline of faith, of believing you are who you've revealed yourself to be. Your promises are what you've declared them to be. Move us to deeper faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.